0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.
1: Hello and a very warm welcome to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this sixth episode of Series 5, we're going to take another look at financial crime. Now, the fight against financial crime is, of course, a core competency for all firms, not just those in financial services, but it is the financial services firms that are in the forefront of that fight. Financial crime is also a key regulatory priority around the firm, as uh, around the world, I beg your pardon, as both firms and policymakers seek to tackle the challenges associated with everything from money laundering, bribery and corruption, fraud, and of course, sanctions. Now, it was widely reported that there was an uptick in all sorts of financial crime during the pandemic, and that increase is now combined with the widespread sanctions imposed on Russia. And that requires focus and resources, potentially really quite a lot of resources from compliance officers and their firms. And it is fair to say that Russian sanctions compliance, emphasis on effective compliance, is and is likely to remain an absolutely key focus for firms and regulators alike. Now, to consider the continuing compliance challenges associated with financial crime, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Rachel Wolcott and Brett Wolfe. Thank you both very much for coming back to talk about financial crime again, basically. Um, Rachel, if we start with you, where are we on the latest with Russia and sanctions and how it is actually working out in practice for folks?
0: Well, I'll just talk from a UK and EU point of view. Uh, Brett can fill us in on all the wonderful stuff that's going on in the US. So here in the, well, in the EU, I think the overall feeling is that sanctions and uh, anti-money laundering experts have been really surprised at how the EU has come together to impose such a wide and impactful sanctions package, which is now in its sixth iteration. Uh, Seasoned sanctioned and AML experts described the package as coming at a scale and pace unlike anything they'd ever seen previously. And it was a huge turnaround Uh, particularly for the EU, which is not known for its speedy delivery. And here we've got 27 member states, so 27 separate countries coming together, as well as Norway and Iceland, because they're all signed up to this too, FYI, uh, for an alignment on a scale that really no one is expected. And the feedback that I've heard is that it caught, caught a lot of people off guard, There have been many late nights and maybe even a few tears shed in firms' compliance departments. Now, I mentioned we're in the sixth iteration. Now, this came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, This includes an oil embargo. And this is a a humongous deal for the European Union. It's massive because uh, carbon dependence, carbon fuel dependence on, uh, Russia is issued. Uh, we de- the, we depend on them for oil. We depend on them for gas, but now, um, the EU will stop buying all Russian crude oil delivered by sea, which is about two thirds of all EU imports of Russian crude from early December and will ban all Russian refined products two months later, but you can buy from, uh, if you're hooked up to a pipeline, which is, you know, this, this gives you a flavor of some of the negotiating that's had to go on. And some countries like Bulgaria and Croatia have um, have exemptions because of the, their proximity and to, to Russia, their you know, relationships um, and dependence. Another big thing that was a surprise for um, EU uh, compliance officers and sanctions experts was the swift disconnection no nobody thought that was going to happen and that's been ramped up in the latest iteration so now spare bank and some of the other smaller uh, russian lenders have been disconnected from swift including a one belarusian bank um as sanctions have ramped up we've seen the targeting of the russian central bank which has a knock-on effect for correspondent banking relationships um, And one of the other messages here is, um, and I think this is going to be a theme of uh, the whole podcast in terms of Russia sanctions, is watch this space. So if you're thinking, if you're a firm thinking about what could be targeted, the message here is that governments are thinking about it and considering it already. Every area is being targeted. Insurance, you know, potentially, well, they already have export restrictions. That was another thing in the latest package, chemicals. Uh, another interesting thing in the latest package is that EU accounting, lobbying, public relation and consultancy companies it, known as enablers, uh, will not be allowed to provide services to Russian entities. It, it, you know, this is quite a big deal. Um, this is something that the U S has been wrestling with, um, for quite a while, what to do about the enabler problem. And, uh, they say that this is coordinated with Britain, you know, the targeting of enablers and other G7 countries, making sure most of the biggest, uh, world's biggest consultancy firms are covered. Um, just to kind of speed things along, there's been a lot of chit chat about this. Oh, okay, chit chat might be, uh, you know, s- simplifying it. At the econ, In the EU Parliament, including the Econ Committee, and this has sparked off a lot of conversations about um, improving sanctions and financial crime regulations, because what uh, EU member states are finding is that they don't have a lot of tools in place to uh, identify assets and potentially freeze them, although a lot of it's been going on. Um, uh, like I said, I think there's a feeling that sanctions compliant enforcement is generally not seen as, um, great in the EU yet. But one of the things that's come up and our colleague, Tron Bagan, who's based in Oslo has been writing about this. They've been talking about a real estate register. Um, they've been talking more and more about, beefing up the sixth, uh, iteration of the anti-money laundering, uh, directive. And, um, there's also a new anti-money laundering authority in the EU that's being, uh, formed at this time. And I feel like there's a little more sense of urgency around this. Um, just, um, Brett, do you want to uh, jump in and talk about what you've been seeing, and then we can go back to talk about the UK because I, I feel like I've been
1: talking too much. Never the case, Rachel. Never the case. You talk too much, so Brett. But do go on, uh, Brett. Well, to, um, the US. Yes, it was. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, so I'm. Um, I'm happy to provide the, the US perspective. Um, during our last uh, discussion on this issue, I talked a bit about how US regulators. Uh, particularly the Fed, uh, were planning to examine financial institutions for compliance with the Russia sanctions um, and kind of scrutinize what they were doing. Uh, But in this case, I'd like to discuss a bit about uh, some remarks that were made by a senior treasury official uh, at an anti-money laundering conference in late May. Uh, Speaking to a trade group that represents securities firms, banks, and asset management companies, U.S. Treasury Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, Brian Nelson, said Treasury plans to take enforcement action against institutions that fail to comply with the multiple sanctions that uh, Washington has issued uh, since Moscow invaded Ukraine in February. Uh, He said enforcement is, quote, one of the tools we use to promote compliance And this is particularly important in the context of our Russia sanctions program. We will take enforcement actions against institutions or individuals that evade, avoid, cause a violation of, or conspire, or attempt to violate Office of Foreign Assets Control regulations. Uh, And he added that uh, he encourages anyone who may have violated OFAC regulations to voluntarily disclose those violations to OFAC. that is a very important point, um, and Nelson added that voluntar- voluntary self-disclosure is considered a mitigating factor in OFAC uh, when taking enforcement actions, uh, so certainly something for financial institutions to take to heart. Uh, Nelson also noted that Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network uh, has issued two Russia-related alerts to provide financial institutions with information about typologies and red flags. Um, The first alert focused on sanctions evasion and the second highlighted channels that oligarchs may use to to hide and launder corrupt proceeds. Um, Of course, it's vital uh, that compliance professionals read and digest these important documents. Um, I should also note that Nelson uh, tipped his hat to the compliance community, noting that uh, compliance professionals, you know, uh, made it possible uh, for Treasury to to take these uh, dramatic steps it's taken to uh, choke off uh, what they like to refer to as Putin's war machine. Um, And he also conceded that Uh, Many of these sanctions have been novel and technically complex. Um, And the Treasury understands it's generated numerous demands on the compliance community. Um, So I guess he was trying to say the compliance folks are appreciated. Um, If that alleviates any headaches, I don't know. Uh, But I thought that was worth noting. Um, And there's been so much information coming out of the U.S. government uh, OFAC has issued more than 100 new frequently asked questions and scores of amended FAQs uh, just since February to clarify the Russian sanctions. Uh, I, I'd like to share an example uh, that I, I think is relevant. Um, given that Washington has issued sanctions barring U.S. persons from making new investments in Russia, uh, OFAC took an important step earlier this month uh, when it issued guidance Uh, which came out in one of these tranches of FAQs uh, that clarified what in fact constitutes a new investment in its view. Um, It was guidance that the private sector here had eagerly awaited. Um, It offered examples of transactions that OFAC considers to constitute new investment. Um, And I'm not gonna go into all of the, uh, the definitions and examples that were included. Rather, I mentioned this um because it demonstrates the challenges that financial institutions face um they were required uh you know this requirement that no new investments be made took place a month uh before there was any kind of clarity on what precisely treasury considered a new investment um so there's confusion has reigned Uh, In regard to to some of these topics, simply because of the speed at which all of this has been moving. Um, And that has, you know, these kind of vagaries have created cracks in the trust uh, that some Western banks have in one another's compliance programs. Uh, In some cases, this has led to suspension of correspondent banking ties, uh, you know, that facilitate the clearing of U.S. dollar payments. Uh, in fact, there have been instances of correspondent banking services uh, suspended by US and European banks uh, against Western banks uh, that have continued to legally operate in Russia. Uh, the law doesn't oblige them to do this, but from a risk appetite perspective, uh, there's a lot of concern that, uh, about indirect Russia sanctions risk from banks uh, that continue to finance Russian activity. Uh, but all of that said, Uh, things could get a whole lot more complicated very quickly. Um, As Russia's war escalates, uh, the U.S. government is expected to go beyond the current so-called primary sanctions that it's issued and move to so-called secondary sanctions, uh, which would no longer simply bar U.S. financial institutions from doing business in Russia, but would essentially bar companies around the world from doing business with the Russian people. Um, Essentially, they would have to make a choice uh, between doing business in Russia or doing business in the United States. Uh, Now, a transition to these kind of highly extraterritorial sanctions would require new legislation or an executive order, uh, but uh, it could certainly be done. now that europe is moving toward an oil ban um you know uh, we have this this issue of oil transported via ship versus pipeline and so forth but an out and out ban uh, would really open the door for the us to impose these kind of secondary sanctions uh because the reason they haven't done so to date is that they are worried about entangling our allies uh and their ability to to clear these transactions related to to Oil deals um, you know so the goal of the United States with such a move uh, would be to strangle the Russian economy, but the effect would be even more headaches for compliance professionals um, it's also worth mentioning that in early April OFAC penalized s p Global Inc. Uh, more than $78,000 for alleged violations of sanctions that Washington levied against Moscow in 2014 over its annexation of Crimea. Um, It was over the reissuance and redating of unpaid invoices, uh, which in effect uh, caused the entity to continue to extend credit uh, to a state-owned Russian oil company, uh, which of course was prohibited by U.S. sanctions. And that fine that OFAC issued was accompanied by a reminder on the importance of strict sanctions compliance. Uh, In fact, OFAC said, this case underscores the importance of careful adherence to OFAC regulations, including in cases where counterparties may make compliance challenging. Well, it's a good bet that some Russians and their well-paid professionals around the world are doing their best to do just that. As we know, uh, expert use of shell companies and other tactics can indeed make compliance challenging. <laughs> uh, so we, we can kind of take a breath there and, um, and sigh, but uh, in the midst of all of this compliance chaos and all of these uh, implicit and explicit threats from Treasury, the US Department of Justice has created two task forces related to Russia sanctions, uh, including one aimed at deploying US uh, prosecutorial and law enforcement resources to identify sanctions evasion and related criminal conduct. So when we discuss Russia sanctions evasion, we're not just discussing potential fines, we're discussing the very real possibility that people could go to prison when the dust clears. Uh, and the impact of turning a G20 nation into a pariah state uh, becomes clear for everyone, including financial institutions.
0: Yeah, yeah I think that's a good. Uh, so
2: put... turn it back over
0: to <laughs> oh, you. Sorry, Brett. Yeah, I was just going to say I think that's a good point to uh, pick up and do a little compare and contrast uh, with the UK approach. I already uh, set out. Uh, you know roughly what's going on in the uh, EU, and just to let people know who uh, subscribe to Reg Intelligence that we have a special spot on our web page, on our landing page that l- leads you to all the latest uh, coverage that we've been doing on um, the uh, Russia sanctions and the Ukraine situation, and also just to mention, ACAMS also has a lot of great information on their website but it's it seems like here in the u k the um we've been taking our lead from the u s somewhat uh I think in the last podcast we talked about cyber sanctions uh something that the u s has been doing for a while, and the u k followed on on that and I think part of it is honestly that the u k really wants to seem tough on this and maybe even seen to be a little more aggressive than the eu Um, now this is kind of hot off the press today uh, the office for uh, financial sanctions implementation which is part of the treasury here um, put out new guidance on penalties that uh, it can associate with um, sanctions violations so previously it was that if you weren't aware that you could plead ignorance like i didn't know now they're saying no you um uh this is a uh, we can impose civil monetary penalties on a strict civil liability basis for sanctions breaches uh committed after today so today's the 15th of june uh 2022 uh it obviously, however, retains the burden of a proof to establish that there was a breach of financial s- sanctions prohibitions. Um, and this, again, like I said, the UK has been taking its lead from the US, and this change aligns the UK uh, sanctions legislations with the legal tests used um, f- for the import and export of arms, and is, more similar to the model used for US financial sanctions. So that's, that's quite a big shift. And this came off the back of the um, uh, new uh, bill that was passed in parliament uh, in March that brought in some other uh, new abilities to bring in sanctions more quickly. Um, like in the US, uh, you could possibly go to jail here for um, sanctions uh, breaches. However, that's not happened yet. And just also in contrast with the OFAC and Treasury statements about um, uh, compliance expectations, of co- I mean, it goes without saying that the uh, OFSI expects firms to comply with rules, uh, comply with sanctions, uh, comply uh, to report uh, what they find, in terms of uh, individuals or entities where they've had to uh, freeze assets. Um, They expect people to follow the rules around licensing and uh, reporting uh, requirements around licensing. And OFSI itself is responsible for monitoring compliance with financial sanctions and assessing suspected breaches. But it's unclear how this works in practice particularly because as of March, it only had 38 uh, full-time equivalent staff. Now I know they've been supposed to be, um, uh, you know, staffing up, but in this job environment, I I think they might've struggled. Just on the enforcement side, we haven't seen any new enforcement here. Um, Like I said, OFCI is under-resourced. They haven't sent a fine a lot for sanctions anyway. I think there might be five or six total. And apart from a fine on stand chart, which I think I mentioned in the last podcast, they've all been really small. Now, you know, the FCA, which is the UK Financial Conduct Authority, could fine you, and they've done it before for um, systems and control failures. It's something the FCA said that they're going to be looking out for. But I would say that these types of enforcements take years to get through the, get through the, the, through the process, uh, the enforcement process. So unless something is so flagrant and obvious, I, I'm not expecting to see any fines happening, although, or in in the near term or even in the medium term, what I would say though is part of Offseas new, uh, program for enforcement, or for penalties, is that they would, when there's a, where they think there could be a lesson learned for compliance, publish uh, uh, an enforcement notice, even if there hasn't been a penalty attached. So that's something they're looking at in terms of, um, I think, maybe some new learnings about
1: this. And I'd weave into that just there, Rachel, that if a firm or indeed an individual is a subject of OSFI's attention, let me put it that way, you may well be into double jeopardy situations. Because if OSFI says, well, your systems and controls are not good enough, the UK financial services regulator, assuming you're a financial services firm, will be very interested very quickly. Um, And whilst they won't tread on each other's toes, they do talk to each other um yeah. so be aware I, I would
0: also yeah i would also raise the long arm of the law from the us uh mm-hmm. us has the ability to go after people or after firms and find them huge billions and billions of, of dollars for um sanctions violations we've seen this in the past um so that's something that people should have front of mind. Uh, if you are a U.S. business, or no, a, a European or UK business, and you're doing business in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. will not hesitate to go after you, even if you know one, you know, even for any kind of transactions mm-hmm. that touch.
1: I, I'm going to interrupt again, Rachel, and be super picky. Even if you don't do business in the U.S., but your business is done in U.S. dollars. Correct. That gives the U.S. jurisdiction. So don't think just because you're sitting in, oh, I don't know, darkest France and buying and selling in mm-hmm. dollars. That, that yeah. means you're still um,
2: available, shall we say, to U.S. Ex- extraterritoriality. I was just going to add that if you're doing business in U.S. dollars, you have a U.S. correspondent account. And that correspondent agreement uh, within that contract uh, will state Uh, that you agree to adhere to OFAC sanctions. Um, So you are certainly expected uh, to comply. Uh, But there's also, you know, in the U.S., I I, I think, you know, we're still in the shadow of all of those wire stripping cases um, and enforcement actions that the United States took a few years back, some of them very large. Uh, And this Russia situation uh, is certainly ripe. Uh, for a potential repeat uh, with foreign banks removing information from SWIFT payment messages. um, And undoubtedly, you know, U.S. banks, not to mention regulators and law enforcement, uh, will be looking for that kind of thing uh, in the context of Russia sanctions.
1: And, And let's be frank, when you say big fines, these were multiple billions, billions with a B fines that were imposed um bnp springs to mind um rather Mm -hmm. quickly standard standard chartered Mm -hmm. yes so this is not i mean i know we're sounding absolute gloom merchants at the moment but this is not (laughs) something to be taken lightly in the risk and compliance context at all the potential downside for either getting this wrong inadvertently or choosing to get it wrong we'll we'll draw a veil over that because hopefully nobody listening to this would choose to get these things wrong um the potential downside is really extraordinarily painful. So up front, you're gonna have to invest, you're gonna have to think about it. If you have you have found you've inadvertently mucked up, the self-disclosure route, certainly if you're in the US, needs to be thought about. But you've got to invest and you've got to keep investing. And I will repeat what I said on the last time we talked about this. You need the evidence, you need the suite of evidence to prove you've done as best you can, the right things in the right way, and you can prove that audit trail. Because one of the regulatory tenants that is absolutely global is if it isn't written down, it didn't happen. So invest in the record keeping around your systems and controls as well as the systems and controls themselves. Um, I shall get off my hobby horse on that one because I could really talk forever on that particular instance. But it really is front of mind for regulators, not to mention the geopolitical risk and politicians. It is a very, very hot topic right now. Yeah, I
0: don't think anybody, any uh, regulator or any government or any bank at this point wants to be seen as being the one that um, had, had sanctions violations occurring on their patch or in their, in their firm, it's just going to look so bad. I mean, it always does. Um, and one thing we were talking about earlier this week was, you know, just how difficult it is. Um, especially, particularly with Russia who is a country that has a lot of experience, um, moving money around managing, um, Elicit uh fun flows and th- this goes back to the Cold War um one thing I know uh compliance officers don't have a lot of time at the moment but you know maybe they could get the audiobook of Putin's people by Catherine Belton it's it's I'll put a link to it in the show notes it's it's really interesting and in the beginning part it really paints a picture of how the Kremlin and the KGB, you know, the security services, um, really had an ex- I don't know of expertise, but they were certainly very active in creating sham companies, money laundering, uh, ob- obtaining prohibited items like technology that they couldn't get, um, and how at the very dawn of, well, the, at the end of the Soviet Union when the Soviet Empire collapsed, and at the dawn of uh, you know, Russia as we know it today, a lot of this was a lot of this illicit fund flows was going on or was going on. And it, it, it just like I said, it shows that the Russian state has a huge amount of uh, expertise um, and practice. I mean, you could even say that they wrote the manual on how to evade sanctions, larger money, and you know, to fund overseas operations, and while hiding their ultimate beneficial ownership. I mean, it's unbelievable, and I think that if, you know, beneficial ownership is one of the things that people are going to have to push on. Uh, one of the things that Offce here in the UK has talked about is uh, figuring out. Uh, who has control of a firm or influence over a firm, you know, we've talked about it on the last podcast. If you've got sanctioned uh, individuals who, you know, collectively own a company, what do you do with that? Maybe they've just sold off some shares um, to family members. That would still be a sanctioned day that would fall under sanctions, even if this company that's now owned by family members is not on the list because you could say that, you know, the sanctioned or designated person is still um, uh, uh, exerting control. And another thing I would say is that, you know, even though, though we know all of this goes on, Um, We've had a lot of IJ reports um, from Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, Luanda Papers. We've had books all about money laundering. But just to go back to the Luanda Leaks, um, the EBA earlier this year published their follow-up on the Luanda Leaks. So this is the European Banking Authority. And this was the Luanda Leaks was linked to... um, Wrong, uh, kleptocracy in Angola, linked to Isabel dos Santos, who was the daughter of the former president there. She had a lot of influence in one of the state-owned oil companies. Anyway, this was all came out in the Luanda Papers. Afterwards, the only only a third of the UK of the um, European competent authorities were UK regulators. No, a third of them took no action in response to to see um, if dirty money linked to Dos Santos and her associates were still washing through. And those who did take action um, found that financial institutions who weren't named in the ICIJ reports uh, had links, still had links to Dos Santos Um, so I think this is really a case of not just, you know, checking lists for names and entities, you've got to really dig deep and you really have to make an effort to do some, you know, client de-risking here, um, because we we know this problem still exists, uh, because we've seen it spelled out in these various leaks over the years.
1: And I would add in. Oh, sorry, go go on, Brad. I, I
2: was just going to mention that you know, um, as Rachel was saying, uh, Russia is very good at this uh, in terms of sanctions evasions and and expert use of shell companies and so forth. Um, but there's another country that's very good at that: uh, North Korea, <laughs> and uh, you know, a number of other nations that are that are under heavy sanctions. Um, and uh, as you mentioned. Uh, Previously, Susanna, uh, you know, there's a lot of geopolitical risk um, outside of just Russia. Um, So, so many things uh, financial institutions uh, are needing to keep an eye on right now, um, including uh, the potential, uh, according to media reports, uh, for China to invade Taiwan um, and take advantage of uh, the fact that financial institutions, compliance departments are somewhat overwhelmed. Um, uh, and, you know, obviously, uh, for other national security uh, weaknesses, if you will, because of all the focus on Russia, um, you know, it would seem to be a potential opportune time for China to to move. Um, and so, you know, I, I again, don't want to be overly drab. Um, or you know say the sky is falling for our our listeners um but financial institutions certainly you know need to keep in mind that, that we could see um a move such as that and if that were to happen um a a, a complete flood of sanctions against China that, that that would be undoubtedly very complex on top of you know what institutions are already dealing with. Um, so, you know, all of this geopolitical risk uh, has to be kept in mind. And um, as I believe uh, uh, we mentioned earlier, you know, watch this space very closely uh, because things are moving quickly and they could expand to to additional jurisdictions.
0: Right. It, Brett, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I've seen some media reports about U.S. Uh, officials, White House, uh, th- talking about uh, not just freezing assets but seizing them, liquidating them, putting you know potentially putting them in a fund for uh, Ukrainian reconstruction. Uh, eventually, I mean, w- we haven't really seen much of that happening here. I think we're still in, very much in the asset freezing space instead sort of the asset seizing. Um, process, what kind of movement have you seen in terms of actually taking possession of certain assets, or is that already happening in the U.S.? Um, no,
2: that's that, that that's not happening. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently came out and made a public statement, uh, which I found interesting. Um, she was speaking with regard to uh, Russian central bank funds Uh, frozen in the United States. Um, And she was making the point that U.S. law does not allow for the um, taking possession of those assets and distributing them to Ukraine, uh, despite all of the talk that something like that might happen. Um, We may end up seeing assets forfeited, um, but that would have to be done. Uh, through the court system um uh, through district court, and there'd probably need to be uh, some kind of actual evidence that the asset in question was linked to criminal activity um as opposed to um uh, you know simply freezing uh oligarchs yachts uh because they might have uh a bad reputation or ties to Vladimir Putin. Um, I think the actual forfeiture of assets is going to be a lot more complex. Yeah,
0: definitely. I, I don't see. I don't sense that we're anywhere near that yet. Although, as we, I think we probably noted in the last the last time we spoke about this, that there has been some a lot of kind of media. So, if you forgive the pun, showboating around. Uh, <laughs> sorry. That was just the first word that popped into my head around uh, seizing these uh, luxury. I mean, these ginormous super yachts, and uh, I think these very uh, high-end properties and what and whatnot. But I guess they're just standing empty, or uh, from what I've read uh, today, they've just turned off their beacons and they've gone gone quiet in terms of the yachts and hiding out somewhere.
1: Yeah, the issue being for financial services firms on that, other than the fact, I have to say some of these yachts are just, I mean, floating palaces, is where Mm -hmm. those yachts or whatever have been used as collateral for something because quite a lot of them apparently Mm -hmm. have been. So if you are the financial services firm, I think that sort of adds yet another layer of complexity in there. I mean, not only is this yacht that was theoretically worth lots and lots of money, collateral against whatever, if it has been seized or is under threat of being seized, how much is it actually worth anymore? Can it still be used as collateral? Should it still be used as collateral? So, I mean, even the things that seem a wee bit more esoteric still come back to impact financial services firms and they're going to have to figure their way through the minefield on the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess oligarchs, just like any um, other uh, run-of-the-mill uh, billionaires, <laughs> tend to have fairly complex uh, financial setups. You know, they're not just like us. You have our, you know, pension pensions and you know, a bank card, uh, like you say. A lot of these, you know, a lot of these big assets are pledged against other things and used for loans because these people seem to be pretty big money spenders. You never hear about the, you know, the quiet, you know, oligarch just living in a small cottage somewhere, you know, eating potatoes. They all seem to be living the high life, or at least they used to.
1: Yes, and I mean, I, I'm sorry, we're running out of time as ever with these things, but I, I would just also weave back into this. We've spoken an awful lot about sanctions and absolutely rightly so, because it is so front and centre of regulators' minds and the risk associated with getting it wrong in any way, shape or form is, is pretty profound. But in all of this focus on sanctions compliance, which is non-negotiable, firms do need to make sure they are still complying with everything else and protecting themselves from financial crime in the widest sense of that. Because criminals being criminals and fraudsters being fraudsters, if they think firms' attention is directed on sanctions, they will try and find another way to defraud people. And so you don't get, you as financial services firms, risk and compliance officers, MLROs, you don't get to deprioritize the other areas of fraud and financial crime that may well be going on, you are going to have to keep up that level of attention. And the longer the shorter that may well be you need to go to the board and ask for more resources. And it may well be that level of conversation that, you know, we've got to continue all the other stuff. Sanctions is the layer on top. We can't not do that either. So just to put it into a bigger picture context, you've got to be able to still defend your firm against fraud and financial crime, and comply with all of those requirements. Um, And those requirements aren't getting any less. Just this week, um, the European Banking Authority put out guidelines for what its expectations are of what they call AML-CTF compliance officers, so anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing compliance officers. It is pages and pages and pages of incredibly granular detail as to what you do as a MLRO, basically. It is way more descriptive in terms of a job description. It is granular. It is also non-negotiable. And there are great chunks in there which are going to be very, very easy, particularly the reporting bits for regulators to check you've done. And now I know because it's the European Banking Authority, it theoretically only applies to EU banks. But because if it applies to EU banks, EU banks will need to make sure who it deals with are also complying with those guidelines in that sense. So I'll I'll include the link to the new guidelines in in the episode notes. But be aware there is a bigger picture still out there and some really quite challenging, let me put it that way, things to have to comply with because of the level of detail required in that compliance. yeah, we it, it's the skill set to be a really good compliance officer and a really good prevention of money laundering, sanctions compliance officer. Your skill set is going to be so valuable, so, so valuable right now. So, yes, it, it, it we live in interesting times. Again, we definitely live in interesting <laughs> times. Yeah, I, just, I want to pick up on
0: uh, what Susanna was saying about paying attention to um, – other kinds of financial crime. You as a uh, sanctions or money laundering officer or compliance officer may, or anti-fraud officer may find a sanctions flavor, now potential sanctions busting flavor to some of the what you might think is garden variety type crime if there is such a thing that's going on. That's one thing that um, ACAMS has talked about. Um, you know, be on the lookout, any kind of fraud, any kind of uh, 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 suspicious transactions that could have a uh, a link to um, sanctioned uh, individuals. Um, I would also just say that uh, people, it might be a good time to dust off some of the uh, old enforcement notices uh, read some of the coverage that was uh, done by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. That's a bit, a bit of a mouthful. Uh, see what they've been talking about. Um, because you know what that reporting shows is uh, that banks, well, that reporting and previous enforcement action shows that banks aren't always great at sanctions and AML compliance. Um, we've mentioned in previous podcasts, the NatWest and uh, HSBC fines that came out in uh, December, 2021, you know, these show some big problems with surveillance and with, with the sanctions, like I said, you're going to have to dig deeper and really probe some of these relationships. And this is what the regulators and the, uh, here in the UK, the office expects, um, you may also have some longstanding customers on your book that may need to, may need to go. Um, you might be, there might be a case where firms have been looking at people coming in through the onboarding process, maybe not as aware of what's going on with existing clients, um. And I would just reiterate again that, you know, I guess it was been one of the themes that, you know, uh, countries like Russia and North Korea, like Brett said, are good at this. They're very skilled at using shell companies. Um, it, it's it's not going to be easy.
1: Uh, I think that's the perfect segue into the takeaways for compliance officers. Thank you, Rachel. Um from my perspective, that sort of picks up on a few things that both I've said and um, Rachel and Brett have said is, whilst I absolutely understand that compliance officers will be flat out at about this point, particularly with regard to the MLROs, you may, as the justification for the resources, you are almost certainly going to need very quickly need to suggest a wholesale board-sponsored strategic review of how you handle financial crime. Um, let's be completely frank. Sanctions right now, difficult to comply with, challenging on several levels, but there is entire it is entirely possible that there's a whole nother level coming at us. Now that's either the Russian sanctions getting much more complicated, going to the second level as Brett was talking about, or do given geopolitical risk, other countries now going into a sanctioned situation. And that level of geopolitical risk and that level of uncertainty, firms need to try to get on the front foot and be prepared. So talk to your board. Talk. You may need that sponsor review. Maybe the board is so up on this, so well aware, they'll just say, here are your resources. I think that's a wee bit unlikely, but it's not impossible. But you may wish to have a board-commissioned review. And you do need to invest in those resources. There's no way around this. You have got to go through and invest to get this stuff as right as you possibly can. Rachel, takeaway from you? Well,
0: mine is maybe less of a takeaway and more of a heads up (laughs) that uh, for those of... uh, Those uh, listeners interested in what's happening in the UK, the Treasury just put out a response to uh, one of its uh, financial crime consultations uh, today, and we can put a link to that in the show notes. Now, this one is amendments to the money laundering terrorist financing and transfer of funds, Regulations 2017. I have not read the whole thing yet, but there's going to be some new stuff in there. So far, none of it seems um, earth-shattering, although um, there looks like there's going to be some expanded requirements to strengthen the regime, and this is going to get put on the statute books as soon as parliamentary time allows. Um, So that's something to look out for. there is also another consultation response due on the Money Laundering Regulations 2017 that's, that's separate, um, and that is supposed to come out this month. So it's we're recording on the 15th, as I said. So I guess within the next two weeks, there's going to be uh, more for your reading list. So watch out for your RSS feed,
1: folks. Rachel, thank you very much. Brett, from the U.S.
2: perspective, perhaps on takeaways? Sure. Um, I would certainly reiterate your point, Susanna, uh, about the need to um, obtain the necessary resources. And I think perhaps um, some leverage uh, with the board might be the fact that the United States um, Treasury Department has – uh, said and reiterated its threats um, with regard to non-compliance with the Russia sanctions. Um, that that seriousness is is something that I think compliance can take to heart and share with the board um, as they make the the argument for additional resources. Um, also, your your previous point about the need to uh, document, document, document when you're making these decisions. Um, because that's certainly something that's uh, going to be looked at, uh, not only by regulators, but uh, potentially if things go sideways, um, law enforcement officials. Uh, so, very important point. Uh, and lastly, um, I would reiterate that financial institutions that make mistakes and missteps uh, related to compliance with Russia sanctions are much better off if they self-disclose those missteps uh, to OFAC rather than have OFAC uh, discover those errors via uh, a third party who is making their own reporting uh, or through some other means. Um, Definitely, you know, there there are so many issues that compliance needs to iron out um, and probably needs to rely on consultants. Um, And their legal counsel uh, to understand the the vast number of documents, licenses, uh, FAQs that are coming out of the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, I think I'd leave it at that. I think
1: leaving it at that, that's no small task for any compliance function to undertake. But thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you very much, Brett, as ever. And thank you for listening. I hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. Hope you didn't find it too completely scary, the sheer amount of things that potentially need to be done. As ever, I'll include the links to pieces referenced in the podcast uh, episode notes. Um, The other thing I'll pop into the uh, episode notes is we've opened our survey for the annual FinTech RegTech and role of compliance report. So if you would like to take part in that survey and we really would love you to do that, the link for that will be in the episode notes. Also as ever, a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Last but not least, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast and please do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening.
0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.